for uh, the ability to um, express our gratitude and love and praise to him musically. That is no small uh, gift that God has given to humankind, and Christians particularly have that wonderful way to express our, our praise and honor to him. And we're thankful that God has given us people such as we have to help us all worship him together. Amen. 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 If you'll open uh, your copy of the scripture to Romans chapter 4. We're there again this morning for the exposition of these words penned by the Apostle Paul. First uh, Romans chapter 4, beginning this morning at verse 13. Romans 4, verse 13. Let me read these verses in your hearing um, to prepare you for the reception of this teaching. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The subject for these verses is the promise of salvation. Misinformation and disinformation is rife in our culture. And it is rightly decried. Untruthful and deceptive information can be harmful, even deadly, to people. Spiritually, this is profoundly so. Especially regarding how one comes into a right standing with infinitely holy God. In Romans 4, we've seen that the Apostle Paul knocks down false ways. Of salvation. He knocks down the spiritual misinformation about how one can come into a right relationship with Almighty God. First, as we've seen, he tells us it is not by works. Second, he let us know that it's not by a religious right or circumcision. As we come to verses 13 through 15 or 17, we see a third negation. A third false way that has been promulgated by others. He knocks it down as well. And it is the first point of this morning's message. And that point is this. The promise is not through law. The promise is not through law. In verse 13, we see the introduction of that word promise here in Romans chapter 4. It's the first time that Paul mentions that word promise. And it is a promise does not pertain to something we have a right to get that in our minds. A promise is not a birthright. A promise is not an entitlement. 
a promise from God is an act of grace. It's a gracious promise that he has given. Moreover, in this promise that God has given to Abraham and to all who believe, God declares that he will do a certain thing. His promises are assurances that what he declares will happen. God can make promises which seem impossible to the minds of finite people because we're finite, but he is not. Number one, his omnipotence backs up his promise. Because he is not limited in power, whatever he promises, no matter how impossible it may seem, he can pull it off because of who he is. He has the power to do it. So God can make what seems to be outrageous promises, but he has the power to bring it to pass. Second thing about God is his character. His character ensures that it will be so. God doesn't make promises that he does not keep. That belongs to the realm of humanity. But when we come to God, he makes promises that he not only can keep, but that he does keep. He is a promise-keeping God. Isn't that good to know? That, that is the assurance of our souls. That's why we can sleep at night. That's why we can face death. Because God has made promises to us that we know because of his character that he will keep. That's good news, isn't it? The promise made to Abraham and his descendants was that he would be heir of the world. That's what it says in verse 13. Now, this promise that God made contains several uh, components or elements. And these elements are pronounced to Abraham as God made the promise back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Three of them I'll mention here. One, that God would give him a land. Two, that a people... Uh, a great nation, Israel. Three, and I'm quoting, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is a universal promise. It extended out beyond Israel and it includes all of humankind. A universal promise of blessing that will come through Abraham. It is the blessing of justification. Back then, In those days, to Abraham, God promised to him and his descendants that he, God, would declare righteous all who would believe. The justification of Gentiles. Now, how do we know that's what it means? Well, the Bible is a book of progressive revelation. The Bible comments on itself because the Bible has a single author ultimately, and that's none other than the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows what he means by what he said in a passage earlier. And then he interprets it and applies it later on. And he does this through the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 says this. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand will be blessed in you. So when God promised that all the families of the earth or nations we bless through you, he was talking about the gospel. Gospel, of course, means good news. It's good news. And that's good. We need good news, don't we? Uh, we got good news. And you know, the world in general is a place of bad news, right? <laughs> Every time you turn on television or social media, some bad news. But the fact for Christians is we've got good news, the good news that trumps all the other kinds of news that comes. And it's the good news. The gospel is that God promised is that Gentiles will be declared righteous by faith. It means salvation. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
Now, further, you can see it here in our text. There's a word descendants in verse 13 uh, of Romans chapter 4. Uh, it's plural, but I believe, and I'm not alone in this, that descendants should simply be descendant, <laughs> uh, singular. And, and that's what I believe it is in this instance. And I'll just let you know the, the word for uh, descendant or seed, uh, sperma, uh, it can be either singular or plural. Speak, seed can speak of the single individual or the collective. Same with Zerah, uh, the Hebrew in the Old Testament. But I believe here it really is talking about seed, singular, or descendant as it's translated here with the plural. In Genesis chapter 22, it says this, in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God reiterates that promise that he gave back in Genesis chapter 12. But he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, the Apostle Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he provides commentary for us to give us understanding further as to what did he mean. That is, what did God intend? What did he mean by what he said? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, we hear the inspired commentary in this passage. Since you're turning there, I'm going to let you go. Let you turn there, all right? Is that a, that, do we have a deal? Very good. Galatians chapter 3. We want to see this revelation is here. And we get the identity of the seed. Galatians 3 verse 16. Y'all need to hurry up. I only have a certain amount of time here. <laughs> That's why you need to read through the Bible so you know where those books are. Uh, amen. So I said, now let me go to that index. Where is it? Gal I read Galatians. Oh, okay, I'm just messing with you. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to, notice the text, his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Christ, the seed, is identified as Messiah. Now, let me expand on this and say this. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. It is through him that the blessing of justification comes to us. It is by him. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, you run back up the page and look at verse 13. And you will see significant words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Let me just for a moment talk about this. Christ redeemed us, our Redeemer, from the curse of the law. Now, you need to understand what this means. The curse condemned us. The law condemned us, rather. But Christ redeemed us from the law, which cursed us. How did he do it? Bearing the wrath of God upon himself on the Christ, on the cross. We had violated divine law, but Christ took our place, as you know. He substituted for us. He bore the curse that should have been ours. He redeemed us from it. In a text from Deuteronomy, cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ was cursed. For us. 
Now, the A portion of Galatians 3.14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Where have we read something about that before? Genesis chapter 12. Here we are. He did all of that so that what God had promised to Abraham, how he would bless all the families of the earth might come to us. But Christ had to pay the penalty. He had to endure the curse for us. Why did Jesus come? We're in the Christmas season. There's a man, Anselm. He was a theologian lived 900 years ago. He wrote a, a, a treatise entitled Cur Deus Homo. Cur is um, Latin for why. Cur Deus. Why did God become man? That's why he came, became man. To deliver us from the curse of his own law. That's good news, isn't it? That's what Christmas really is about. <laughs> People think it's about little lights on a tree and some stuff under a, uh, a tree and some eggnog and other such things. No, it's not about that. Those are the trinkets of the tradition of the holiday. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, the festiveness of it. That's fine. But that is not the essence. This is it. That the promise that God made to Abraham about the Gentiles, that, that means you and me and everybody who would believe, Jews included, will receive justification. That's the deal. Now, this promise was made before the Mosaic law, before the law. The promise is not through the law. You can't be saved through the law. And the promise that God made that he would justify the promise of justification was given 430 years before the law was given at Mount Sinai. Before Moses went up to the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, God had made that promise four centuries and 30 years before. The divine law bequeathed um, to us, to Moses and to Israel, did not nullify the promise. How do we know that? I didn't make it up. It's in the scripture. Run down to verse 17 here in Galatians 3 and it says, what am I saying is this? The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. God made that covenant with uh, uh, Abraham. And the law comes later, but it did not nullify the promise. That promise, I told you earlier, God keeps his promises, doesn't he? Does it not? We can trust him. The promise is not through the law. Now, in verse 18 of Galatians 3, check it out, or you'll see it. It says, For if the inheritance, remember, we were heirs of the world, that's what Paul is addressing again here, that word inheritance, as he used the word heir there in our text in Romans. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Hmm. Praise his name. And we'll see why that's so important. God said, I promised it. It's not through law that it comes. It's because of a promise I made. Now, in Romans 14, 4, Excuse me, Romans 4, verse 13, the B portion. 
guess we could call it. Abraham and his descendants, or descend, descendant, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law. That's what it says. We just saw why. But through the righteousness of faith. Righteousness of faith. The righteousness through faith means it's a righteousness imputed to us that is received by us by means of faith. Divine righteousness. And that's the righteousness we need. Did you not know you can't get into heaven apart from divine righteousness? God does not accept any righteousness other than his own. Because that's the only righteousness that he can accept because it's perfect righteousness. His righteousness, your righteousness is not good enough. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. We need a righteousness that's greater than ours and it's God's righteousness. That he imputes or credits or reckons to us when we believe. When we go to heaven, when we enter through the gates there, when we're in the presence of Christ and God and the Holy Spirit and all the redeemed of the ages, we'll all be there because we all have the righteousness of God imputed to us. The same righteousness Abraham had. He received, it says in 4.3 of Romans, the same righteousness that David possessed says it here in verse 6 of Romans 4. The righteousness that Abraham had, we know he genuinely had it because God gave him the sign of the seal of circumcision that indicated the authenticity of his faith and the righteousness he possessed. And for all who follow in the footsteps of faith that Abraham laid down, we have that righteousness. We, look at verse 13, become heirs of the world through Christ. Heirs of the world. You say, how are we heirs of the world? Because Christ is the heir. Hebrews 4, 1, Hebrews 1 tells us this as well. And we're joined to Christ. Y'all agree with me? Amen. Amen. I'm glad you do. You're, you're on solid ground. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 17. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. We're inextricably, inseparably united to Jesus Christ. And all that belongs to him belongs to us. We're co-heirs with him. It all belongs to him. But since we belong to Christ, since we're joined to him, guess what? It belongs to us. 1 Corinthians 3. 21 through 23 talks about things that belong to the believer and one of them is the world. Here, I'm going to tell you what the world means. First, the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes back, sets up his thousand-year rule, the world's going to belong to us. Then when that's over with and we move into the eternal state, all eternity, the eternal earth, that belongs to us. Let me tell you something. Don't worry about what little part of the world you got right now. You're going to have far more later on. Amen. Amen, isn't it? Some people scrapping and scraping. I got to get a bigger piece of the pie and all that. Let me tell you something. You're going to have far more than a piece of the pie. When you inherit the entire world. 
And all the blessings that God has in store for the children of God. That's where you need to fix your mind. It's not here. If all I had my hopes were here, I'd be a miserable man. But my hopes aren't here. My hopes are elsewhere. Amen. They're tied to Jesus Christ. And that's where yours need to be. And that's where we're going to receive them through him, from him. Now, verse 14. Paul says, why people of law are not heirs. Uh, He explains that those people who are basing their hope for righteousness or salvation on the law of God are not heirs. Why is that, Paul? Let Let me help us. Well, perfectly, they would indeed be heirs of God. But they are not able to keep it perfectly. It is impossible. You know that. To predicate a promise on an impossible condition that is perfectly keeping God's law does this. It renders faith void. It nullifies the promise. Meaning it's inoperative. Here's the deal. There are two principles. Faith and law. And they're mutually exclusive. You can't have one and the other. If you have one, you don't have the other. And I'm going to tell you something. Neither faith nor law are in the business of negotiating. (laughs) Faith not negotiating. Okay, I'll let you have a little law. Come on. And law said, okay, I'll let you have a little. No, no, no. They are intractable in their positions. Faith, law, the two are mutually exclusive. You can't have a little of both to be justified. (coughs) Furthermore, the apostle continues here. The latter part of verse 15. Where there is no law. Uh, uh, Verse 15, the first part. For the law brings about wrath rather than bringing salvation the law brings wrath divine wrath on lawbreakers wrath that's God's uh, wrath and let me tell you what God doesn't just blow his top don't ever think of God like that he's not like you (laughs) yeah I thought that would wake y'all up (laughs) you see uh, you you, people say I just I just blew my top well God doesn't blow his top The word wrath there is orge, and orge means a settled disposition against sin. God has a disposition that's stable and steady in opposition to sin. Always. God doesn't, as it were, wake up some morning and say, you know, sin ain't so bad. I'm not so bothered by it today. The next day he wakes up, I'm hot about it. No, 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 no. He's the same. With respect to sin. Understand that about him. Now the apostle Paul. Says here in verse 15. For where there is no law. There also is no violation. Now don't misunderstand Paul's meaning here. He is not saying that where there is no law. There is no sin. That's not what he's saying. Because Paul has already told us. uh, What he means. In Romans 2, 12, the A portion, it says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
What he means is no written law. Written law. What does that mean further? Romans 5, 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Can we explain that? Sin has always existed. Until God gave the law at Mount Sinai, there wasn't a specific violation. We'll look at that in a moment. How do we know that sin was in the world? Because men died. Verse 14 in Romans 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Moses, of course, the lawgiver. When God gave Moses the, the law on Mount Sinai, people were dying. Death, in fact, was in control. Because men are sinners by nature. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. What Paul means is uh, there is no list of commands to show, show a specific violation. Now, in our text here, in Romans 4, the word violation, the Greek is parabasis. Parabasis means a passing beyond, a stepping over the mark. Romans 7, 7 helps us see uh, this, an example of stepping over the mark, passing beyond. God puts a boundary. He says, you can't cross this. When you cross this boundary, you just stepped into sin. Specific violation, that, that's what is shown here, told us here. Romans 7, 7, are you there? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about, here it is, coveting. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul had been coveting. But now he knows what it is. <laughs> Men have always coveted. They coveted before the 10th commandment. But when the 10th commandment came and said, this is what coveting in this illicit desire means. Oh, that's what I've been doing all along because I've always had the illicit desire. Now I know what that is. You see, the law of God exposes our sinfulness like a CT scan reveals disease in our body. Sin specifically identified here. That's what Paul is saying. Coveting is identified the law, divine law, Paul lets us know, shows us our sin. Hmm. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, can be saved by it. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what Paul is saying. So we get to know what it is. Questions again. Y'all want to go? Amen. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see something. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to understand. Law shows us our sin. The law condemns us. 
Look at the law in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Paul asks a question. And he answers. And in his answer, he tells us something wonderful and remarkable. Galatians 3.21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. What Paul is saying here to us is that the law of God was never intended by God to save us. The law is not able to impart life, that is, eternal life. The law is not able to give righteousness to us. That wasn't the purpose point of the law. Well, it's the law's purpose and point, then you would ask. In verse 24, it's clear. It says this, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law shows us our need and Christ is the answer. The law shows you you're a sinner. The law shows you you've violated God's law. You deserve his wrath. And the law says, I can't help you, but I know someone who can. And his name is Jesus. So you take your sin-laden self over to him, and he'll wash you and cleanse you and take you to heaven. Amen. Uh, that's, what, that's what Jesus do. That's why you need faith in him. So the promise is not through the law. The promise of justification by faith, the promise of righteousness, the promise of salvation is guaranteed by faith through grace. That's the next point. Verse 16 of Romans 4. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Because of the law's utter incapacity to bring salvation to sinners, it is, that is, justification by faith, righteousness, has to be by faith. The law can't save you. The law wasn't intended to save you. It has to come by faith. In accordance with grace. Grace. The next word. God's action, not man's. God's act of unmerited favor toward us. Because of the promise of justification by faith comes by grace. Get this point. It is certain to be given to all spiritual descendants. It's guaranteed. It's what the text says. So we don't have to worry. I'm glad it's given that way. Because we couldn't get it otherwise. But since it comes by faith through grace, it is guaranteed. The promise will be fulfilled. To all Abraham's spiritual descendants, those who believe like the believer Abraham, as uh, Galatians calls him. Now, in Galatians 3.29, it says this. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That's who we are. We're heirs according to the promise. We're his descendants spiritually. 
and that would include not only Gentiles, but Jews. Who's the father of us all, the bottom of the verse. As it is written, Paul appeals to Scripture to corroborate his point. A father of many nations, I have made you. Hmm. He says that to corroborate the statement, as I just mentioned, I believe, who is the father of us all. He quotes Genesis 17, 5. He says a couple of things about God. God who gives life to the dead. Stop there. We need to expand that for a moment. He gives life to the dead. What does that mean? Well, that was back with um, Abraham. Here's what it means. Remember Sarah? Sarah was past childbearing age. Uh, she didn't have the nursery open. She, didn't. she said, this ain't happening. So they turned it into a, a little place where they eat roasted lamb. Now I'm making all that up, you know. Sarah had, was past childbearing years. And Abraham, uh, reproductively speaking, was as good as dead. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, teaches us this. God waited till they couldn't do a thing, naturally. They were dead in terms of re reproductive capability. And once they reached that point, all they could do is look up to God. You got to pull this off because Abraham said, I'm old. It ain't happening. Sarah says, I'm sure enough old. <laughs> it's not happening. And next thing you know. There's a little boy. His name means laughter. A man who's dead, reproductively speaking. Here comes laughter. His name is Isaac. God is able to do that. The next thing about God. And calls into being that which does not exist. This explains the assurance with which God can speak of the many nations that will descend from Abraham. Because God's going to create them. <laughs> from a previously dead body, here come all of these nations out of this man and woman. And that's not a hard thing to believe. Christians maintain that God created Creatio ex nihilo creates out of nothing. He created out of nothing everything that there is. It's a small thing then for him to give life to the dead reproductively and produce many nations. <laughs> By the way, I need to make a point here, a footnote. This verse here, the latter part of it, calls into being that which does not exist, does not speak about believers calling things into existence as the word faith teachers falsely claim. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, we can't call anything into existence. 
It's a big lie. People buy that nonsense. Think just speaking of existence. Yeah, sure. You're not God. You're just a mere man, a mere human being. You can't call anything into existence. The context has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God, the creator, who can fulfill his promises because he's unlimited in power. He's omnipotent. Let me conclude with this, our salvation. All glory and honor goes to the Lord. Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Salvation is from him, by him, and through him. That's why we praise him. Thank him for what he did for us. See, he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Praise his holy name. Let us bow together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for the salvation which you wrought for all of us who believed. And thank you, you're still in the business of saving sinners. Among us, there may be some who without him, Christ is saving Lord, save them. We pray you open their eyes to their need to have a righteous standing before you that only comes from you if they will believe on you. Believe on your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you do that. And pray for us who are believers. Help us to become more intimately acquainted with your word. Greater fluency in it. Particularly about what we have addressed this morning. That we may articulate these things to others. Explaining them the great gloriousness of our God who saves the sinners. And may these truths continue to strengthen our own hearts. Deepen our faith and adoration to you. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Now you see.